The Lord be with you, everyone. And we want to continue uh, tonight looking at that beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, the righteousness of God. I, I want to emphasize it one more time very quickly just to get us back where we were. Because I, I hear it as persons have talked to me about what I said last week, that we've got in our head an idea of righteousness which is alien to the righteousness that comes through believing into the Lord Jesus. The fact is, the way people look at righteousness here in the Western world is essentially the false righteousness of the law that is spoken of over and over again in the New Testament. So let's one more time look at this word righteousness and understand what it really means. It is, let me say again and with great emphasis, a covenant word. That is, there's a whole vocabulary uh, that only has meaning when I understand that it exists inside a covenant. And so this word righteousness may be the central word of covenant. If you go into the Old Testament, you'll find words. Let me say there's loving kindness. That again can never be understood outside of a covenant. Faithfulness is another such word. And even the word remember is in that category. But right in the middle there is righteousness. If you go through the Psalms, um, you will find many times these words that I've just spoken of will be all playing in the same verse or verses because they all speak to this reality, covenant. And covenant is, as I said last week, the joining of two persons or parties and joined with an oath, a covenant oath, whereby they swear upon their own life and swear upon God to bear witness that these terms and promises and goals of covenant shall be fulfilled even if it kills the people to do it. It is the most extreme giving of oneself to each other. And, of course, the whole Bible is based on the fact that God, our Creator, Lover, makes a covenant with us. His love to us is a covenant love. He swears upon his own self that he will bring to pass his promise of saving us, of removing everything that would separate us from him and bring us into face-to-face -face fellowship with himself and bring us into a family whereby the love of God pours into us and through us into the world. And you see, keeping the promises of covenant, being faithful to that oath of covenant, when I am a party to that covenant and I am keeping that covenant, the scripture says that's righteous. So righteousness is not just sort of keeping a vague list of do-good things. It's, it's not keeping a list of rituals and laws and saying, well, I did a pretty good job on that, so I guess I'm righteous. 
No, it is specifically God keeping his own self-obligated promises that are toward us, and we believing that God that he so does, and we then are counted by him as righteous. We are included into that covenant relationship. So, did you get that? God's righteousness is his faithfulness in keeping all the promises that he made and that he sealed in the oath that he called upon himself, the oath of covenant, in which he swore to us to bring us to that place where there is no separation from our side. He would deal with our barriers of separation that we had erected and would bring us into his love purpose. That's his righteousness that he swore he would do it. And with every opposition from humankind, he was faithful to his word, to his covenant oath, and he he relentlessly went through all that human could ever raise against him to bring that to pass. And of course, the fascinating one, no, it's more than fascinating. This is, this is the subject of worship. This is adoration. This is being speechless, astonished before God that in making the covenant among human beings, there are always the two parties and both of them swear upon their own lives to keep it. But this covenant, oh, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see this. In making this covenant, God takes both sides. That is, he does not only obligate himself to keep the word he has spoken, he obligates himself to keep our side of the covenant. Yes, this is the grace of God being drawn out and explained. This is, God does not only promise to keep his promises, he takes our side to keep all our obligations to him. And so, Our covenant with God and God's covenant with us is all assumed by him to bring us into this perfect covenant, and he seals it in blood. And, of course, that blood in the Old Testament was the blood of animals, um, but it pointed forward. It was not an end in itself. It was always just a pointer, a, a sign on the side of the road of life that said there is a blood to be shed that will forever seal this. And, and that, of course, was the blood of the Lord Jesus, which in Hebrews is called the blood of the everlasting covenant. Okay, I'm not making this up. Let, let me read Hebrews 6. And verse 13, and I'll spot read it through the passage. It says, For when God made the promise, that is the promise that is the foundational promise to the rest of the Bible, when he made the promise to Abraham, listen, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by his own self 
That is, when humans swear an oath, they call upon God as the ultimate greater to witness. But who does God call on when he would swear an oath? There's none greater. So he swore by his own self. And he said, and this is in Genesis 12, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. Now notice how how that is a covenant oath. He doesn't say, I will bless you if. He doesn't say there's another party to this. He says that he, and brings the obligation upon himself to do it, I will surely bless you, period. Not if you do this, not if you do that, not if you stop this. He says, this is entirely upon me. I will surely bless you. And so Hebrews 6 says that is God. He swore by himself. He did not include anybody else. And thus, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. That is, when someone swears by their own selves, they give an oath... Well, that's it. The promise is underscored in purple and everybody can rest in it. Well, it says in, again, I'm back in Hebrews, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath. That is, he didn't just give a promise, he gave a covenant oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge, laying hold of the hope set before us. It's an anchor to our soul. You see, it's impossible for God to lie. So when God just speaks, that should be enough. But he gave us the two, not only his word spoken, but the absolute commitment, self-obligation, that with covenant oath, he said, I will do this. Okay, have you ever thought about this? You see, these promises of God being our Savior, our complete Savior, the one who brings us out of death into life, the one who presents us before himself, declares us without sin, without guilt, without shame, now, that's not a whim. You see. It's not something God just said, hey, wouldn't that be good? Or uh, just throws it out there and, and says, see, see if anybody will believe this. No. Can, can you just take it? This, If you got this, it would be worth tonight's uh, webinar that God spoke these words and these promises and was saying that if he doesn't keep them, then God himself would cease to be and creation would collapse back into nothingness. What we're dealing with here, it says, by two unchangeable things, the word of God and the oath of God to back it up. It's impossible for God to lie. Impossible for God to lie. He is the truth. And in Psalm 89, it says, God speaking, he says, I will not alter one word of the covenant that I have made. How does all this work out? That God 
not only takes his side to lay a hold upon us, but he takes our side. And our side was to believe his word and believe his person. How did he do it? That's the gospel. Jesus is that descendant of Abraham that Genesis 12 is talking about. Jesus had a genealogy, went straight back to Abraham. He was the seed, the descendant of Abraham. But you see, this is it. He is 100% man. He's an authentic human with a genealogy. But he is God, the Son, who has assumed our humanity. When I look at Jesus, I am looking at the human but the human who has been now joined to God himself. Jesus is God inside our humanity. God and the human have come together in one human being. God joined as one with the human. That is, in Jesus Christ, God is doing what he swore to do. But at the same time, God in the human is making the response. I know this isn't religion, is it? Because religion is full of all the things you've got to do. Whereas the gospel is one thing. Look at what God has done. Your salvation isn't upon a list of rules. Your salvation is upon a God who so loved you that he took human and said, I, as the human, will take the human side. I will bring the human in. So he doesn't say, well, I've done my bit, now it's your turn. No, he says, I'm handling this whole thing. And this... this human who is God in, in our authentic humanity, he, he expresses, he, this is a weak word, it's a lot more than that, he, he shows us in every word and action in the intent of his heart, uh, faith in the Father. He is the God who cannot lie inside our human. And so now inside the human, he brings this about. And here is a human who trusts implicitly and completely in the Father. Here is the human who dwells in the Father's love and now out of that love, loves perfectly human and brings to them salvation brings to them healing it's there it is jesus jesus is god man who is now bringing the human into perfect relationship with the father and that needed for god the father to bring to pass those promises then this human, with all the rebellion, this human that has stood up in hostility to erect every barrier to God's love, this human must be put to death. There is no other way. Mankind has wedded himself to the way of death. 
But how shall God do that except that this one who is God swearing to keep every promise and God swearing to take our part, then in this one we all meet. And that is not something incredible because he is the creator and we have a relationship, every one of us, to the Creator. And when that Creator became one of us, then we find our, all of ourselves are, are there. And so He, as us, not merely for us, but as us, He carries us to death. He carries all our rebellion to death, all our hostility. He carries all our guilt. Carries it to death. Carries that terrible death relationship to Satan that we had in the lie, carries it to death. He sheds his blood, which is the blood of covenant, which is the oath of God. I am doing what I swore to do, even if it kills me. God takes the human race into death. That is, he fulfills perfect righteousness. He fulfills the covenant from the God side and from our side. And the blood of Jesus is the blood of a covenant perfectly achieved. He has done perfect righteousness. And when Father raised him from the dead, that was the seal, that was the stamp. He did it. He did it. Jesus rose from the dead because he has now conquered death. He has stripped Satan of authority. He has put away sin. So the Father raised him from the dead. And here is human. Yes, Jesus never shocked off his humanity. Human walks out of that tomb. Human has conquered death. Human has put away sin in the blood that was shed at the cross, but that human is none other than God joined to us. He did it. I mean, I haven't talked about you yet, have we? I mean, he did it. He did it. He did it. He cried out that great cry, it is finished. And it was finished. It was done. And we, when you look at the cross, you see your face. He was there as you, carrying all your hostility and sin to death. He did it. And when he rose from the dead, look at that one coming out of the tomb and see your face, for you were raised. The, see, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not something like you know, if, if you're here in the States, then we have the 4th of July, and it, as we celebrate something happened, you know, we're at the founding of the country, and it's, it's just a holiday that you remember when that happened, but it's, and, and then we come to, you know, Good Friday and Easter, and people think it's sort of the same thing, that something happened back there, and, and, and you know, Jesus, a very wonderful person, and, and so now we celebrate when he died for us. No, do you realize the resurrection of Jesus was the recreation of the whole creation? Jesus came out of the tomb, and there's never been a human being like this, and never been a human being that has conquered death, never been a human being that has actually wiped out sin and put Satan under his feet. 
No, this is a brand new creation. What happened when Jesus rose from the dead was cosmic. It would change all of history. This is the new creation, and it meant that every promise God has ever made, he has fulfilled even to death. And now we come into the new covenant. What, what, what? That's the righteousness of God. God is righteous. That's his righteousness that he did everything to, the, to a, an nth degree that we had never dreamed of. So I say again, where do we come in? Our response to this gift that God gives, which is the gift of himself, we believe that the words that are often put together, repent and believe, um, it takes a, another time to talk about it, but let me quickly say the word repent uh, I, that word should be scotched out of our, our Christian language because it has nothing. Actually, if we investigated the word, it means the opposite of what it is. The word, let me say in Greek, is metanoia. And that word means a radical, a radical change of mind. Change of mind concerning God, a change of mind concerning ourselves, a change of mind concerning the purposes of God. Radical change of mind. In fact, I, I think it would be better to say it means an exchange of mind because we, we get rid of all the old answers that we had to what I've just said. Everything we thought about God, flush it down the toilet. That's what repentance means. Everything you thought about yourself, it's done, it's finished. I've got a new set of beliefs for you that all are anchored in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That God is not the God that you thought he was. He is the God of incredible, endless, <laughs> unconditional love. But for what we're talking about, covenant love, that would not dip Part from dealing with us humans until he achieved his end. To repent is to get, I mean, not merely get rid of, I mean, repel away from you every other thought you've ever had about God. This is who he is. He's been revealed in Jesus. And, and, and to look at yourself and, and all that you knew was true of yourself before, the sin, the guilt, the shame, the inner hostility to God, well, that's gone. It was crucified with Christ. You now are who God says you are because you are included into Jesus and his history is your history. And repentance is linked to believe and that is not mental assent. No, 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 no. I mean... This isn't just saying, do you believe in the resurrection? You know, fill in this blank spot. No, that, that, that's an obscenity. The, the word maybe you would better understand it, believing into. It, it means resting your entire life. It means resting all your hopes, your dreams, your honor as a human being, your identity into the object of your faith, who is Jesus Christ, God from God, 
who loved us and gave himself for us. You, so this isn't believing about. It's got nothing to do with about. You're not going to class and studying an ancient figure of history. No, this is a person who now, alive, stands before you and you recognize what he has done. You recognize who, in fact, you are because of him. And so you believe into, that is, you commit yourself into him. You rest your life there. That's it. Your sin has been dealt with, so you don't have to work and try to deal with it, do you? You rest your hope in him. And as you rest your hope in him, you're not only awakening to a whole new world, a new creation. That is because now you're seeing things so differently. But it also means then you have in fact died to everything that was the that's been put away the you've died to the hostility it means in fact yes you were crucified with Christ it's a fact and you you die to all prior belief systems that would contradict that Jesus Christ has achieved and done it all so he did it all and you rest into the fact, well, he did it all. He did that for you and as you, and you believe into that fact and say, so be it. That's the way it is. It's the Holy Spirit that brings that to pass. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our enjoying that total covenant acceptance with the Father. That Those feelings that you had, those drawings the coincidences that brought all this to be in your life was the Holy Spirit bringing it to pass. And so the whole issue is God's righteousness. He did it. He brought about salvation in Jesus Christ. And when you believe into that, then His righteousness, His keeping of the covenant Every promise now is yours, and you are declared and counted righteous. And as I said last week, in divine mass, when, when God counts it all up, his conclusion is that you are the righteousness of God. That is what he did for you and as you is yours. And you stand before God as he has achieved making you. Uh, look, it's, there's no struggle to this righteousness. There's no struggle in the gospel. It's a frightening peace, at least if you're religious it is, because I, I've been stripped of everything I trusted in, all, all it, but because I've done this, because I did this, because I'm, because I'm, because I'm, and I don't do, and I don't go, and uh, no, that, that wasn't righteousness. I'm sorry, but the Bible calls it a false righteousness. It's not a righteousness. He, God himself, is righteous. And that righteousness was in all that he accomplished in Jesus as you and for you. And now I just <laughs> believe into that. I rest into that. It is so. And through nothing that I have done, I realize that I am 
righteous in the righteousness of God. I recognize that I am included in the covenant face to face with the Father. He did it. He did it. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, now all these things are from God. You see, He did it. Who reconciled us to Himself. He didn't have to be reconciled. He's never quit in this active love that's beyond description, but it's we who were reconciled. God embraced us in Jesus and and carried our hostility to death, and he reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then, as Paul is saying, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, we go and tell the world that God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's enough to keep you up singing for a week. Look, not counting your trespasses against them. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Look, only the Holy Spirit ultimately can show you this, because all this idea that righteousness begins in us and with us, and we work our way to being accepted or righteous— That springs straight out of Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden. And so I have just proclaimed to you this glorious aspect of the gospel. But while I'm speaking to you, the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to bring this about. I mean, bring this, that is, a seeing, a realization of the finality of what Jesus has done. And that's what Jesus said, John 16, 8. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he said, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit's job, at least one of his jobs, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, what does that mean? He goes on, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Well, I'm not stopping there because that's uh, another hour, Um, but just enough to say that's amazing, isn't it? He convicts the world concerning sin by reading them the Ten Commandments. That's what I thought. I mean, honestly, that's really what I was taught, um, that that, uh, sin is just a matter of breaking the law. God's law. Well, that might have been true, but you see, when Jesus assumed our identity, when Jesus became our sin, he took all the breaking of the law to himself and brought it to death in his own death. So now what? What, what, what is sin? If he has completely dealt with sin then the Holy Spirit convicts concerning sin because they do not believe on me, said Jesus. That is, the only sin is that I refuse, I absolutely refuse God's answer to that. Or you could say, I refuse to be forgiven. 
But as I say, just let, let that percolate a bit. But he goes on and says, concerning righteousness, that, that's what we're talking about. He said, he comes to convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, you no longer behold me. What's he talking about? Well, it's this word convict. What does the word convict mean? It means, hear me carefully, to convict means to expose and prove with convincing arguments that the world is wrong, right? He shall convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict means he is going to expose what the world thinks about sin and prove that they're wrong about that. And he's going to show that what the world believes about righteousness, they're wrong. He's going to expose where they're wrong and prove with convincing arguments that they are wrong. And so with judgment. Now, there's, that's the first meaning of that word. But if you look in the dictionaries, there's a secondary meaning, which is convince. And the two can merge together very easily. But think of it like this. Yes, he comes and he exposes. And it could well be that as you listen to me, the Holy Spirit is doing just that, exposing that everything you thought, that neat little list of achievements, is not righteousness. No, no, it's not righteousness. The New Testament calls it a righteousness of the law and goes on to show that's a false righteousness. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. That is, he exposes it. He says, that's not it, you see. It's not it. And he shows it's not it in the light of what Jesus has done. That, that might be a jolly good idea if Jesus hadn't come. But Jesus came and has brought to us the righteousness of God. And so he not only exposes, he convinces us that in Jesus is the only righteousness that really counts. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal to us the righteousness of God that is now one with us in Jesus Christ. So ask him, if, if you feel that you've still got fog in your head, then ask the Holy Spirit to clear your head. Ask the Holy Spirit to excite your heart to seek and long for true righteousness. Ask that all false righteousness will not only be exposed, but it will become ashes in your mouth. And let me quickly say, this is not only dealing with past guilt by giving you acceptance in a place in heaven, which we hear a lot about, that You've somehow got this uh, okayness, that's righteousness. You, you got a right to stand before God on the last judgment. And Well, um, no, the, the New Testament never speaks of it like that as a, as a lone thing. It's, it's now, in each, at this moment, I am aware of a righteousness given to me, a righteousness I did not earn, a righteousness that was earned and given to me through Jesus and his covenant blood shed. But it's real 
I am really standing in that covenant relationship with the Father. It is real, so real that it affects every part of my living life right now in each moment as we face sin and the temptation to try that we've got to deal with this sin and know to to declare it through my whole being and to declare it in worship before God that he has already dealt with this sin. And I, and I rest in what, what he has done and, and I speak to him who is my life that you are the one who's already overcome this and, and so overcome this in me. I step into his righteousness facing the power of sin in our thoughts. We don't struggle with them. We recognize this is no longer who I am. I am the righteousness of God. I'm standing in God who achieved in me what he swore an oath to do. Then I I don't uh, go back to my willpower to struggle with sin, but I I look and say, you've done this. I entrust this moment to you. Do you understand? This righteousness is not only the gift of God, but it's also the power of God through the Holy Spirit in moment by moment bringing this reality into our lives. So Philippians 1.11, try this one for size. It says, having been filled with the fruit of of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of it. That is, this being the case. This, I mean, to the point of speechlessness that that he did it and placed you in his presence (laughs) out of his love and his sworn oath, his righteousness. He did it. Well, that is going to bring forth fruits in your life. That's not just a thing that's out there, like something filed in a heavenly courthouse, but it brings fruits of righteousness. You you are now going to live in accord with your intimate fellowship, beloved of the Father. You're going to live in accord with the Holy Spirit who is love dwelling inside of you. And so 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Practices righteousness. I practice being this one totally beloved and accepted by the Father. Uh, 1 John 3.7, Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteous is righteous. That is, it's not some fudged up thing in in an invisible world. It is the practice, and it, practice of righteousness. Have you got it yet? That is not practicing a list of rules. That is practicing being the person beloved of God. Practicing giving that love to the world in which I live. It says he's righteous just as he is righteous. We are one in this. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. By this, the children of God, the children of the devil, are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And so loving one's brother is paralleled with practicing righteousness. And practicing righteousness is being the person I now am in Jesus Christ. For this righteousness, we hunger and thirst. And that's that's the essence of this beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We've had to take time looking at righteousness because of the uh, misunderstanding in our Western world. So we're hungering and thirsting, could I put it this way, to live to the fullest potential of being included in this covenant in Christ. Living to the fullest potential here on earth as we live within ourselves face to face with God the Father walking in love with all in our circle of life. Now, my flesh, that is my humanity, that was where the original lie could find a hook. My flesh rebels at such. Um, it, It wants, always wants to return to achieving in self that which can only be and has been fulfilled in Jesus. That is, my flesh always wants to prove my own righteousness. I I want to achieve it in my own strength. This, as I said, is called the righteousness of law in, in the New Testament. It's always set up as this other, this false righteousness. This is the point. We, It's hard to get it because... This is the sin of trying to be good. Yes, that's it. This is we, the great error, the greatest error, and it's so hard to get into the flesh mind. The great error, the error of trying to be good. In Proverbs, it says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. Did you get it? I mean, how can I say a person is wrong for trying their best to be nice? <laughs> I mean, how can I say that, that it's, it's wrong? It's, it's the great error of, of what the New Testament subsumes under law. That I, it's, it's the error of thinking that doing religious ritual, going through wrote, uh, I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I can't go here, and I can't go there. You know, it looks like piety, but it's the great error of trying to achieve being good in and of myself. It, It is the turning inward to me, to will obedience. I'm not going to do this. I'll dedicate and rededicate. Rather, then recognize that was crucified with Christ. That's ended. It's over, as over as the body of Jesus in the tomb. It's rather now the outward, 
the obedience of faith, not trying to do it, but faith that he has done it. And look to his achievements that he did as me and for me that outweigh all my failures. No. Hunger and thirst for the real thing. That's what it's about. Blessed. Oh, the joy of the person who hungers and thirsts after God's own righteousness. And when it comes to hunger and thirst, well, I think at least 95% of my audience know nothing about it. Some of you who, who are listening in parts of the world, the same as those first hearers, those who first listened to Jesus, they understood hunger and thirst. Those of you that live in some desert areas, I mean real desert, um, you know what hunger and thirst is. But most of us don't. <clears throat> we call, I'm hungry means that I had lunch a little bit early and so now I'm hungry for dinner. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what this means. That, that just means you're a spoiled Westerner. No, <clears throat> Um, hunger and thirst. Uh, hunger and thirst, when you truly hunger, and especially thirst, I put thirst beyond hunger, you, you can get to the point that you would kill for, for water. You know, you see someone with, with a bottle of water and, and you're thirsty in the sense that some of our friends in the Middle East out there in the deserts, they know what it is. Um, and to see them, they've they got water, and, and there's such a craving, it's, it's almost to the point you'd kill to get it. See, hunger and thirst, this craving, this, this sense of near starvation, this sense of, of I'm thirsting to death, I've got to have, I've got to have, I must have. The righteousness that we're talking about is not a footnote to the gospel. This is, is what you've been searching for. This is the hunger that is at the very depth of the human spirit. Hunger. Where righteousness is going to satisfy the deepest hunger of the heart and the spirit. Don't you get it to stand well, actually, the Bible says sit, because there's nothing else to do now. You sit and rest. So you're seated. You're fitted into Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And there they have familiar fellowship. And there's no more, ever no more talk of sin or guilt or shame. <laughs> Righteousness. That, that's it, you see. God has achieved his end. And this is what he was after from before creation. Righteousness. Have you never longed for such a relationship where sin has no more authority over you because God has achieved <clears throat> the judgment of Satan, which was that third thing the Holy Spirit would teach you uh, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So I say again, it's not a footnote to the gospel. It is answering the hunger and thirst of the human spirit. See, hunger satisfied, and we can all relate to this. 
because any form of hunger, when hunger for food is satisfied, then it means that we have received within us the source of life and health. Or you could use the word nourishment, if you please. But, I mean, it's the source of life and health in the sense that without that nourishment, we will ultimately die. So, hunger is telling me I am in need. And if this carries on uh, a little bit more, I'm in desperate need for nourishment without which ultimately I'm going to die. So the righteousness of God, God achieving all that he gave his covenant oath to do, he's done it. That is my nourishment. Do you get it? That's my nourishment, what God has done in Jesus Christ and what he now gives to me through his Holy Spirit and witnesses in me, it's real. That I stand before God in this now moment, beloved in Christ, accepted as he, that satisfies, satisfies. Now I can get up and start living. See, the righteousness of law, that is the keeping of all achievements and rules and so on, it doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, see, you, you wouldn't use those words because it's not seen in the same way. Rather, you see, the righteousness of law is drawing upon my own flesh. It's telling myself, if you grit your teeth, if you dedicate yourself enough, you're going to be able to do it. Go for it, boy. Go for it. You can do it. You can do it. Struggle. Try. Pray more, read your Bible more, beat yourself up more. It's it's not the world of hunger and thirst for that which will nourish my soul. Rather, it is the world of struggle and trying to attain this standard that I suppose I'll know when I get there, I I suppose. Um, the, The goal of this false righteousness is not the satisfaction of participating in God's gift to be nourished and strengthened. No, the goal of false righteousness is a gold medal for achievement. I did it. Only you never get there. Because no, (laughs) there's no there. The whole thing is a, a deceit. It's a fantasy. You'll never get there. There is something else altogether. It's the gift of God. It's God's righteousness that has brought to you the gift whereby you stand in the righteousness of Christ, your home. So, to hunger and thirst means that I've, yes, I've woken up. I'm no longer fooled by the false. Or you could say, you could say, you're no longer fooled by fake food. That gives a passing sense of fullness, but is in fact the process of death. You know what I mean. You can make a jolly good meal of donuts, and you'll have a sense of being full, but you're in no way satisfied. 
There was nothing in the jolly things except enough grease to kill you and air. And, and, and so it is with, with so much fast food, especially here in the U.S., we, we know much about it. You, you, can, you can stuff yourself with fake food, but it gives no nourishment. You, you are not healthed by it. And, and, and you, you find yourself needing to eat more and more, and, and you, you see persons who are now addicted to false food because they can't achieve their end. It won't satisfy the cells of their body with nourishment. No, that's the fact. You see, this is hunger and thirst after righteousness. You've discovered the real. You've discovered the truth in the face of Jesus Christ, and I hunger and thirst to know that. Have you noticed that life in full health is indicated by hunger and thirst for real food? Or put it this way, if you notice that when you're, you're getting sick, if you get even a cold or the flu, you don't want to eat. Or, or it, it's, it's your taste buds that are affected. Your desires of stomach to eat have been affected. And so it is, whether it's a craving for false food or sickness that keeps you from real food. It, it's... See... When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, when I hunger and thirst for God's food of my very inner spirit, it means that I see through the lies. Have you ever looked at that stuff on TV, the advertisements, and, and you know it's all fake, you know? They, they, but they make the food look like it's the most delicious thing on the planet, but you know it's it's not. It's been denuded of all goodness and health, and, and the advertising comes up, and something inside you said that would make a jolly good meal, but the, then you know that that's not the truth. You know that's not the truth. We have come to this point, and I trust you're with me, We've seen through it. We, we've seen through all the the false and the fake uh, of if you if you do this, if if you achieve that, then you're going to have this incredible walk with God. No, my incredible walk with God is God's gift, and that gift is in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit has achieved that in union. Hunger and thirst after the real. Paul expresses this so strongly in Philippians 3, 7. And of course, he lived his early life in that false righteousness. But he, he says, now read it. He says, whatever things were gained to me. And he's, he's talking about all this uh, achievement of doing something that was according to the law, that gave him a, a position and an honor and a reveredness. He was known as a holy man, a pious man. Look what he does. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. That is, he said, I've, I've seen through it. Doesn't count for the sake of Christ. More than, than that, he says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
He said, when, when I compare all that dead list of things to this living Jesus who loved me, gave himself for me, and now includes me into this covenant, he said, I, I've suffered the loss of all things. But he said, I count them like rubbish. I might say that that word rubbish in the Greek language is extreme. And rubbish is a very nice Sunday school word to translate that word in the Greek. I mean, I'll leave it at that. It goes on, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you get it? He hungers and thirsts. He said, yeah, I, I put the, all that stuff away. I, I don't want it. I hunger and thirst for the real thing. Hunger and thirst arises from being aware that there's an emptiness inside me that I cannot fill from within myself. Something's got to happen outside of me and place the outside inside. Do, do you understand? Um, I, 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 can't, I can't tell my stomach, now work at this and you'll be full. No, I realize something's got to happen to me from the outside. This nourishment that my stomach craves has got to be outside, inside. And the Holy Spirit is, is doing that. This blessed hunger, Jesus at all, the joy of this, the joy of that hunger, um, knowing that this, this is, is, is here for the taking, the Holy Spirit is, is giving to us this. We, the very fact of, of my hunger is telling me there is food. The very fact of my thirst is telling me there is water. That that which is placed within me to crave and desire is the very proof it's there. God, uh, he doesn't make us self-contained. He doesn't make us that we now are the source of all our life, but rather that life, that righteousness, that union in Christ Jesus and now comes into me through the Holy Spirit. Um, we create it. I mean, this is the most blessed thing, that you have a longing after fellowship and friendship with the Holy Trinity. It's a longing that can only be satisfied by Him. That, that hunger within you is the Holy Spirit working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And it's His good pleasure that we are thus in covenant union, standing face to face His delight and our delight in Him. That's right, from the very beginning, God, God said in the Garden of Eden, of all the trees you may freely eat, that is, he's saying, I have made you with taste buds. I've made you with a stomach that registers when you're hungry. It's the way you're made. I've made all of this to nourish you and keep you alive. I, I, I've made the food that completely fits the needs of your body. Very well. God himself has given himself to us. That's his righteousness. 
and he exactly fits everything that I am made to contain and celebrate. No wonder Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. So you come without money and you buy and eat by taking. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. It's taking it. I I might throw in here, the liar has twisted this longing for God into finding satisfaction not only in trying to keep a long list of rules, but on the total other end of the spectrum in physical food, drink, and possessions. I don't want to stay too long here, but I'll throw it out because there's a craving for food that is actually the twisted craving after God. You you think food can give you what only can be had in righteousness, standing in God's righteousness. The the craving in in the world of drugs, the, the craving of the drink we put in our mouths, the craving to own more and have more and more and more and more and work myself to death. All is seeking something beyond what it appears. It looks like you're working for money, but you're not. You're working for something only God can give you. The satisfaction of physical food. You think that's it. No, it isn't. There, There is a longing for contentment and satisfaction and peace and joy that food will never give you. You're hungry for God himself, you see. I just, I just throw that out. Um, blessed is the person who's seen through all of that. And you know, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, and, and so, um, we, we seek him in every situation. That in this situation, we will see the righteousness of God. Isn't it interesting, at the end of Matthew 6, just a few verses on from here. He talks about um, the, the Gentiles or those who don't know the covenant. They, they spend their life seeking after the stuff. What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we put on? And he says, after all these things the Gentiles seek. But he said, as for you, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. What on earth does that mean? My hunger and my thirst... It translates down into such minutiae details as uh, where I live, what I put on, what's in the refrigerator. What's he saying? His righteousness. Because in his righteousness, his covenant commitment to you is for your protection, your provision. He cares for you as a father. And he doesn't just throw that out as an idea. He has committed himself in covenant oath that you are his in terms of caring for you. He cares for you. And so said Jesus, no no anxiety, please. No, No spending your life in anxiety of where food is coming from, but rather resting in him who is the righteousness of God. You discover in him the faithful covenant provider. 
And as, as all, it's, it's not a matter, you know, you don't make a bargain with God and say, well, if I do this, then you do that. No, you're back to false here. No, the righteousness of God is his announcement. I have done this. I have achieved it in Christ Jesus. And, and I trust him. And therefore, I discover his righteousness in trusting him for the very stuff of life. Or you'll be satisfied. He says you will be filled, and that's why you can rejoice. The hunger, the thirst, the guarantee of God is that he will satisfy you. And that's some word, dear Lord. The word satisfied. Look it up yourself, because you're not going to believe me. The word means satiated with food. Yeah, satiated. Oh, let me, another one. This, this is out of the dictionary of this word in the, in the Greek language. It means to gorge on an abundance of food to the point of being full and the state of mind of being satisfied. Yeah, you heard me. It means, you say, I've had all I can ever eat. I cannot eat another crumb. And my host is saying, you can have as much as you want. And you respond, no, I couldn't eat another thing. That's this word. Satisfaction to the extreme. You see, false food, fast food. You can be full, but your body is not satisfied. So you have to eat more and more and more. No. This righteousness, this gospel, which reveals the righteousness, it's not a tease. It's it's not speaking of some remote day after death. Right here, right now, in this relationship, that in covenant you stand face to face, cheek to cheek, in the embrace of God the Father's love in Christ Jesus. Satisfaction. Out of which a whole new way of life emerges. Satisfaction. Um, and of course, satisfaction opens us up. We grow in this. It's never static. We grow into a capacity for greater satisfaction. And therefore, this blessed hunger and thirst never really leaves, even though for this moment I have gorged upon God. But that only expands my capacity to know him the more. Jesus always spoke of the gospel in those terms. John 4, 13, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. The water that I shall give shall become in him a well of water, an artesian well, springing up to eternal life. Never, never thirst again. And John 7 uh, Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, filled and to spare. And this spoke he of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Or again, John 6, Jesus said, The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven, gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you get what I'm saying here? He says, you've come to the source of satisfaction. You've come to the bedrock of contentment. The very cells of your inner being are now satisfied as you stand in the righteousness of God. Um, and I could keep going. Oh, could we ever? Um, but I, I think we've got as far as we're going to go uh, with this. Uh, there it is. The, the blessedness, the incredible joy and peace of those who understand the righteousness of God and that I stand in that righteousness in Christ Jesus. And he did it all, he does it all, and ours is the rest of faith and a heart that springs out in worship. Well, that's the way it is. And we are um, doing work on our studio and... That will take the next couple of weeks, and then Nancy and I are going on a vacation to visit her multitude of relatives, <coughs> fellow Cubans in Florida. And so we will not be back here for the next few weeks, but we shall come back and we shall return to these pathways of unbelievable joy. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that blessing in the Holy Spirit, open your inner eyes to see His righteousness and open the very longings of your heart to desire to live ever more fully in that righteousness that satiates our spirit. So I bless you. And that is the way it is.